0: I'm so grateful for this song, We're Building Up a New World, that I learned years ago from my mentor, Dr. Vincent Harding, which helps me in times like these when things are hard and I need to remember what it is of doing, the kinds of freedom songs that we need for journeys like these. This version of the song is a live, a multiracial group of activists and musicians here in Denver who came together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker, and we are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap back with you today. I'm a UCC pastor in Denver, here on Cheyenne and Arapaho land, and the faith organizer for showing up for racial justice or SURGE nationally. This podcast is a project of Faith and is particularly designed for white people. White people like me talking to other white people about race and white supremacy. We believe white people like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. We'd love to hear from you and especially from folks of color about how we're doing. The word is resistance. Today, when I'm recording this, it's snowing pretty hard here in Denver. Just yesterday, one of my best friends and I sat in our backyard catching up and drinking tea and commenting on how beautiful the blue sky was, how warm the sun. Within just a couple of hours, the wind had shifted, blowing hard with a chilled bite, and by evening, a cold rain had started to fall. Now we have a couple of inches of snow and I've been outside to talk to my nettles who's been bravely still sending up fall growth in the hopes she'll make it through the snowstorm. That's typical fall in Denver, though we are feeling like this is a bit early for our fall snowstorm. But one moment you're in shirt sleeves, the next moment you're scraping snow off the car and praying your nettles don't freeze. By this time tomorrow, the snow will all be gone. Things can change one moment to the next, pick up, spun around, put back down, just like that, sunshine to gray skies, just like that. As I'm recording this is October 9th, 2017, Indigenous Peoples Day, Indigenous Resistance Day, I write in my calendar. Of course, my calendar still calls this day by its colonizer name, Columbus Day. Did you know Columbus Day started here in Colorado 110 years ago? It spread everywhere from here, spending a lie about a violent, genocidal, misogynist enslaver and traitor of enslaved people. As some sort of discovering hero who saved Indigenous peoples from themselves. Gradually Indigenous folks have been saying no, no to celebrating that lie. One by one, thanks to Indigenous organizing, cities are abolishing Columbus Day, replacing it with Indigenous Peoples Day. But the work is ongoing. There are still parades and school celebrations and presidential pronouncements and no mail delivery and days off in mattress sales, not to mention monuments and entire cities named after this horrible, murderous human. I can imagine the voice of the divine booming out of this Exodus text. They have cast for themselves an image of a colonizer and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O people. That's probably, actually, a really easy connection to make. One we make all the time in telling the story of the golden calf. What are we worshiping instead of God? Money? Power? I remember a clergy involved in Occupy Wall Street carrying a literal golden calf through the streets, a sort of ritual symbol of what we worship as a culture. So I'm guessing putting Columbus in for the golden calf in this story isn't a stretch for us, as good progressive white folk. We nod our heads and say, of course our culture does this, but we don't, right? We don't worship Columbus, do we? I guess what I want us to think about today is not the easy connection that doesn't actually prompt us to action, but rather the harder question the Exodus story deals with, which is, what does it actually mean to be free? Everything changes. From one day to the next for the people of Israel. From generations of enslavement, 430 years, the text says, to freedom. Picked up, spun around, put back down, just like that. Maybe they feel the change in the winds, the rumors of some guy named Moses yelling at Pharaoh every other day. But then one night, there is a severing. The only thing is blood. And they're gone. Just like that. Trekking across the wilderness wondering how they'll keep safe, how they'll feed the children, whether the water is safe, if they are actually getting anywhere at all. We shouldn't be surprised, I suppose, that we end up here. The people freaking out because Moses went up the mountain and hasn't come down now for a month. The only one who knows how to talk to that booming, smoking, mouthy God who's just a little bit scary, no matter that manna keeps showing up every day. I'm fascinated by it. Such a human story about how hard it is to sever ourselves from the ways of Egypt. Nicola's podcast on the meat pots of Exodus 16 a couple weeks ago is brilliant about this. And honestly, I wonder if Moses and God had any clue about how to organize people because they bring the people out into the wilderness and then Moses disappears over and over for his little private chats with God. Eleven million instructions about the color of the tent curtains. And he comes back with these instructions and the people like, um, okay, that's fine. And also, are we gonna die? Maybe. Maybe in this week's story the people just want to talk to God themselves. Maybe freedom is an endless wilderness and we're never quite sure where we're going. Here's a thought. Aaron is no great sheikhs as a leader, right? Happy to fill the power vacuum while Moses is off playing God's stenographer, he melts down Egypt's gold into a golden calf. He does nothing to help the people hold on to a vision of freedom, never sings their freedom songs back to them to remind them of who they're meant to be. But honestly, I'm not sure about Moses either. While he and God are going over all the measurements for the tent of meeting, what kinds of stones and which kinds of thread, I'm not kidding about the colors of the curtains, y'all. How is he holding that freedom vision for them? I can imagine Moses coming down and saying, so the tent curtains will be blue and purple and crimson. And the people being like, um, Moses, you realize we are in the middle of nowhere? How do we feed the babies? What I'm saying is freedom is hard. The temptation to return to what seems safe, what seems comfortable, what seems known is strong. So tempting. Aaron gave in immediately. Moses talks God out of giving in in today's text, but then by the end of the chapter Moses gives in too, slaughtering 3,000 of the people for their supposed faithlessness. What I'm saying is, in the wilderness, everyone in this story chooses the way of Egypt, and we can focus on the gleaming golden calf, but there's also the way of Pharaoh that results in genocide. Freedom is hard. Freedom asks us to sever ourselves from all the systems that keep us inhuman. The systems, for some of us white folks in particular, that keep us safe, fed, comfortable. Freedom severs us, picks us up, spins us around, sets us back down, a little bit dizzy, blood on our hands, wondering how we'll stay safe, how we'll feed the babies, how we'll ever find our way from here. The morning of October 6, 2007 was a gorgeous fall day in Colorado, the bluest of bright blue skies, enough wind to whip the four directions flags with a crack you could hear even over the drums over the chanting crowd. We were downtown in Denver marching with The Colorado American Indian movement from the four directions till we met in the streets in front of the Capitol, the black, white, yellow, red flags flying against that blue sky. We were there to protest the hundredth anniversary of the Columbus Day holiday in Colorado and to stop an act of violent hate speech in the streets, the Columbus Day Parade. Decades of effort by Colorado AIM was frustrated by the local white people needing to celebrate a colonizer as some sign of their worth. Years of dressing up in bad Asian native costumes, floats of people carrying signs with all the Columbus-named towns across the U.S., shouting at protesters that they were losers, that the colonizers were the winners, that all those brown people should just shut and go home. The previous year, the U.S. Cavalry Union, unit that had been responsible for the Sand Creek Massacre led the parade. In the streets of the Basako Arapaho parade, indigenous leaders said, no, violence will take. A group of 11 students from I Love School of Theology, my seminary, joined in solidarity as we were arresting the parade, including hundreds more supporters witnessed. It's hard to believe it was 10 years ago because October 6, 2007 lives in my bones every day and every day after that. Nothing was ever the same. I was severed that day. Many of us were who were white. We talk about that sometimes. See going in I had certain assumptions how things would go. I assumed, for example, that wearing a stole meant police would treat me with respect, that my stole would keep me safe, that by following all the proper nonviolent direct action practices, police would not hurt us, that if we ended up going to court, that the court would be fair, that I'd get to have my say. None of those things were true. Our group. Pile of students and some others sat down on the street in a circle, arms linked, feet pointed in, right at the front, right up against the line of cops between us and the parade. We sang Amazing Grace. Mostly I remember the drumming and the singing with the drumming, how the drums echoed off the buildings and finding the eyes of friends on the sidewalk to make sure they saw us as SWAT and riot cops started wading into the street, batons drawn. We were just sitting. Others were sitting or standing, young people, elders. I watched as the cops came in battle armor, draped in weapons and zip ties, knocking people's knees out with batons, dragging people off without even the chance to stand, twisting their arms. In our circle, we looked at each other and kept singing. We were nearly the last to be taken. My friend hauled out of the circle by their necks, tackled to the ground, wrists nearly snapped, rendered unconscious by pain-compliance holds. Some of us still don't remember entirely what happened to us, though, as one of the last taken from our circle, I watched it all. I prayed we wouldn't die. I thought... You see, I thought our stoles would keep us safe. White Christians in stoles, they'll respect us, right? But when I asked if the zip-tie handcuffs cutting off the circulation to my hands could be loosened, just loosened, so I could feel my thumbs again, the cops refused. Ten years later, and my thumbs, my hands have never fully healed. I don't talk about it much because I know that the generations of trauma that happened and continue to happen to Indigenous people is a kind of pain I will never know. But I do think it's important to name sometimes. There is a kind of wound that is the wound of severing. And that's how I think about it now. I wouldn't trade that day for a lifetime of no pain. I wouldn't trade safety and comfort for the cost of freedom. But that day, I thought I would be safe. Safer anyway, that my white Christianness would protect me in a way that indigenous people, literally on my arm, were not. And I wanted that safety. Even as a long time activist, even 10 years ago, I was content in my assumptions. I thought I had left Egypt, you see. I thought I had left, but I carried their gold in my pockets and melted it down into a god called white comfort, white safety white assumptions that systems will always work for me. That day was a severing, picked up, spun around, put down 30-whatever hours later when I got out of jail, from sunshine the morning before to gray and bitter cold that afternoon, and I have never been the same since. Everything changed that day, and every day after that, waiting to heal and realizing I wouldn't, not exactly, Realizing I asked and asked to be severed from cuffs in the hope I would not be marked, not be scarred, not knowing then these are the wounds of freedom, the kinds of wounds from the severing of attachments to what I thought would keep me safe, comfortable to what I thought would protect cops and courts. Stoles didn't keep us safe, golden calves couldn't keep Israel safe. And I'm telling you all this because we need to know, as white folk, we can be severed. Severed from whiteness and survive. And in no way is it easy. In no way is it a one-time deal. Over and over, Israel freaks out in the wilderness. Over and over, we will too. How will we stay safe? How will the babies eat? How will we ever get home? Those are real questions. And the temptation to turn back to Egypt when the answers are known is strong. It's built into everything we know. Let Egypt provide. Let Egypt provide. You know what I wish the Exodus story had? Instead of instructions for tent curtains, how about recipes for wound salves and heart strengtheners? What if Moses had said, take the unleavened bread and the nettles and the yarrow and the rose, take the herbs that will heal these severing wounds and keep our aching hearts strong? What if instead of disappearing up a mountain, Moses had hung out with the people, built a crew of organizers instead of measuring cloth for curtains, reminding them of the strength of the collective, reminding them of their freedom songs, reminding them God keeps providing. They don't need Egypt's meat pots or golden calves or addictions to genocide to keep us safe and provided for. No, God keeps providing over and over, over and over, over and over, and together we'll get home. Together we'll feed the babies. Together we'll keep each other safe. What does it take to get free? What's the medicine we need? What are the songs we need? Ten years ago I was severed from my attachment to beliefs that whiteness keep me safe. That my whiteness draped with a stole would protect me from violent cops and unfair courts. I'm still learning those lessons. I'm still listening to the ache in my body from that day. What does it take to be free? Not just me, but the whole collective. What will it take? It took years to realize that was the journey I was suddenly on. Picked up, spun around, set back down, and to make with intention choices to keep severing myself from whiteness in community with other folks trying to do the same. For your action this week, a couple of things. First, if there's an effort in your city or town to abolish Columbus Day, get involved. Columbus, or honestly, any other enslaved person trading, Indian-killing, white supremacist, quote-unquote, hero, heck, half of Denver's streets are named after Indian killers and Klan members. In the wilderness, the people started telling Egypt stories instead of freedom stories. So let's tell freedom stories, y'all second get some of your people together talk about ways you are attached to the safety and comfort whiteness offers you maybe it's an unquestioning comfort about calling police for anything that looks quote unquote suspicious in your neighborhood maybe it's saying just enough to be considered progressive but not enough to risk your job your pension your access your prestige working up the power structure left egypt But they left with Egypt's gold that got melted down into that calf. How are you carrying around Egypt's gold? What needs to get severed in you to get you free from whiteness? How can you start practicing that today? And note what I said. Get your people together and do this as a collective. Don't try to do this all by yourself. Figure out together what you'll practice what medicine you'll need for the wounds, what songs you'll need for the way. Together. Thanks as always for joining me today. Let us know how your action goes. We'd love to hear from you all by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. We'll be back next week with the amazing Margaret Ernst giving us a resistance word for the text for October 22nd. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org and our podcast, Lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. And transcript as well on our website, showingupforracialjustice.org podcast. The transcripts include references, credits, and copyright information. And finally today, just a big thanks to our sound editor for this week, Paul Stewart. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap. Thanks so much.